Let's continue our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, last week we considered that very controversial subject of head coverings. Uh, we have a, a somewhat less controversial subject before us now, at least for our own context. Uh, turn with me to chapter 11. Uh, we'll take up our reading in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as we open it up this morning, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us in how you would have us to worship you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that we're about to have a church fellowship lunch or dinner, a meal together. Uh, as uh, we were just discussing, soon we'll be gathering together to enjoy uh, some food. And I imagine you've brought a, a 10-pound rib roast cooked perfectly medium rare, stuffed with garlic, covered in herbs. That's my ideal meal. Now imagine I brought that to the potluck, pot providence, um, and I proceeded to sit down and eat the whole thing myself without sharing. That uh, would seem to me a pretty offensive thing to do, especially if there were others who came and were not able uh, to bring anything. And so they, not being allowed to partake, to share in the meal that I brought, 
and having been unable to bring anything themselves, are left to go hungry. That's something of the situation Paul introduces us uh, to here today. I think we have a hard time understanding this passage uh, because we, we have our way of doing the Lord's Supper. Uh, and it is uh, admittedly a little bit different than what was going on uh, in uh, the church in Corinth. Uh, at this time in the church, it had become common to have uh, what we would call a love feast in, in relation to. It's not the same thing as the Lord's Supper, but in relation to the Lord's Supper, they would often have a meal. And what it would look like, it'd be a, a common meal where people would bring something. If they were rich, they would bring much. If they were poor, they would bring little or nothing. Uh, and they would all gather together and they would eat together. At least this is what that was supposed to be like. Uh, and in conjunction with that, they would have the Lord's Supper, uh, which the Lord Jesus instituted. They would either have the, 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 the bread uh, in the beginning of the meal and then have the meal and then conclude the meal with the wine, the cup. Or they would have the meal and then afterwards they would have the Lord's Supper. In either case, though, Paul is now going to address some, some significant issues going on in the church in relation to their participating in these love feasts uh, in, in conjunction with these uh, celebrating of the Lord's Supper. So th- to begin with, he, he wants to uh, commend them, but he cannot commend them. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is for the better or for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear there are divisions among you. I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And so despite these factions, despite these divisions um, that are going on in the Corinthian church, there is an upshot, Paul says, uh, the genuine among you uh, would be made known. But on the whole, uh, this is a, a strong rebuke. He says, I do not commend you. That's a negative statement and it's a negative understatement. And the the positive sense, we might say, is I rebuke you, I correct you. Uh, it's an understatement, and it's supposed to emphasize that Paul is not pleased with what's going on in the Corinthian church. Uh, he, he's very upset about this, in fact. Uh, we're going to see why in a moment. Uh, he, he does sort of say there's this upshot there. The factions exist, the divisions exist, and we, we can use our imaginations at some level to think of what sort of factions uh, and divisions might exist in a church, um, in our own church, uh, in churches in America. They tend to be theological in nature, uh, divisions over uh, beliefs, uh, perhaps in terms of practice, but especially here in the, in the Corinthian church, these, these factions and divisions we know from elsewhere in the letter uh, do relate to some degree to the teachers, right? You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Uh, there, there are some factions with respect to those things. But here, especially in our passage, the, the faction, the division, is primarily that over the rich and the poor. He's going to go on to describe a situation in which uh, people come and they, they leave hungry uh, because they have nothing, because nobody's sharing with them. Uh, and so the, the factions, the divisions here especially, I would highlight, are those of economic and social distinction, not theological and practical. And so... There's the upshot that even amongst those divisions existing, Paul says, yeah, I, you, know, you almost expect that there has to be factions and there has to be divisions at some level because we know that the church is not a pure church. No church is perfectly perfect. And so there's going to be people who are doing the wrong thing and believing the wrong thing. Uh, we expect that. Uh, and from that, we can see uh, that there are uh, those who truly believe and truly practice among them, the genuine here. 
Well, Paul goes on to, to tell us a little bit about more about why he's not commending and what's what's so uh, unpraiseworthy about the Corinthian church. Well, it's their practices concerning the Lord's Supper. He goes on in verse twenty through twenty-two: When you come together, is not the Lord's supper? It is not the Lord's supper that you eat. He's saying you've done it so poorly and so wrongly that substantially it's no longer the same meal. You think you're partaking in the Lord's Supper, but you are not partaking in the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. They're not waiting uh, to enjoy uh, this common meal together, this love feast together but each one is rushing off on his own to gobble up whatever it is that he's brought so as to not share it with others. And the consequence of this is that one goes hungry and another gets drunk. Uh, the, the strong contrast here is between being absolutely hungry, having nothing, and having such an excess of something uh, that you're, you're drunk, whether, whether on the, the, the drink that you've brought, but even on the food, you're, you're consuming in excess. And so the, the problem, you know, occasionally you have potlucks in church and there's simply just not enough food, right? Uh, you're last in line and you're kind of scraping the edge of the crock pot. There's not an insufficiency of food. There is a, 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 a problem in the equitable distribution of that food. These common feasts were uh, for the people to come together and enjoy fellowship one with another. And instead of being a symbol of sort of unity, it actually becomes a, a symbol of disunity uh, because their unwillingness to share and to wait for one another uh, is creating these divisions. And so Paul asked the question, it's sort of a double negative in the original, it doesn't quite come out in, the, in English, but in verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? He's saying, are you like homeless or something? Uh, he's, he, really, he's addressing the rich, uh, the, the, the rich among the Corinthian church in this passage. And he's saying, in a sort of a scathing sarcasm. Are you homeless that you don't have places to eat and drink? That you, you bring your abundance into the church for a, or into the, the house? Really, these wouldn't be church buildings. These would be Roman estates. These would be nice, you know, large houses that could hold a great number of people. They've gathered there, and they're, they're getting drunk, and they're eating in excess, and the other people, the poor people, are getting nothing. And he's saying, are, are you homeless that you don't have a place to do this, that you, you rush off to eat? Well, if that's not it, if it's not that you don't have houses to eat in, maybe it's that you just despise the church of God. Ouch. And humiliate those who have nothing. This is what's going on in the Corinthian church. And I think actually that this relates to the former section we just read about hair co head coverings, right? Because the, the whole point Paul was making previously is that God has created all people in relationship one to another. And the problem in the previous section was, was this radical individualism that does not take into account the, the effects of our actions upon others. Uh, that when we violate the natural order uh, concerning uh, gender and distinctions between gender, uh, we are saying that the only thing that matters is myself. And my, my head doesn't matter, whether my husband or Christ uh, otherwise. Uh, it's saying, I'm, I'm what matter. Uh, I am the person who matters. It's, it's a radical selfishness. And this is what Paul's rejecting. He's saying, you despise the church of God. You, think, you, you account them for nothing. They're, they're, they're worthless. 
or perhaps it's uh, those who have nothing, the poor among us. You humiliate them because they're sitting on the outskirts of the house, perhaps unable to enjoy in any food uh, in this feast. So what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? In this, no, I will not. I, I, I hope the indignancy of, of Paul comes forth in your reading of this passage. He is very, very concerned and unhappy about this situation. The Corinthians' behavior during the Lord's Supper, during these love feasts, it, it, it completely undermines the entire purpose of the love feast and of the sacrament. It demonstrates a complete disregard and unconcern uh, for the least among them. Paul goes on in verses 23 through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup, and after the supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this also as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we know these are the words of institution that Jesus gave. They're recorded similarly in Luke and the other evangelists as well. And I think the question we need to ask, we often cite from this passage when we're taking the Lord's Supper, but I, I think we need to ask ourselves, why is Paul suddenly recounting this institution here? What is he trying to teach us and the Corinthians, he's highlighted their sin, uh, that they are, are, are violating the, the bond of unity by rushing off to enjoy their own meals without sharing anything with those less fortunate in the context of their love feasts. But how does that relate to, to the Lord's Supper? And I think the relationship is that they've, they've, they've turned the love feast and the sacrament into a common meal. They've turned it into something simply physical, almost profane. And that is completely contrary to the purpose for which Jesus Christ himself instituted the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was never intended to be a potluck. You know, you have churches nowadays actually going back to this where they, they want to make the Lord's Supper more of a, a real meal, a fuller meal. That's never been Jesus' intention in the institution of the Lord's Supper. From a reading of this institution, somebody tell us, why is the Lord's Supper given to us? It really has two purposes. Any thoughts? Remembrance. Remembrance. It's a meal to remember what? Yeah. Jesus, and especially his death on the cross as a, a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. And then besides being a remembrance of the past, it is ongoingly a proclamation of that fact until he comes. And so this is not just a let's eat bread and drink wine and enjoy a meal together because that's a demonstration of, un of unity. There, there, there is a demonstration of unity in the Lord's Supper, but its primary purpose is not to fill our bellies. And that's how the Corinthian church was treating it. In relation to the love feast, uh, the Lord's Supper together kind of just blended into this common meal. And if you were rich and brought much, you enjoyed it. But if you were poor and you had little, well, you didn't really get to participate in that fellowship. And so Paul is highlighting this disunity 
as being completely contrary to the purposes of the Lord's Supper, which should, of all things, emphasize unity, but primarily its purpose was to remember the Lord's death and to proclaim it until he comes. And so Paul instructs the Corinthians of the, the proper way to partake of the Lord's Supper. He's emphasizing the significance uh, of this meal as a remembrance and a proclamation uh, of Jesus' sacrificial death. And as I've highlighted on Wednesday, I won't belabor it. Hopefully you're here on Wednesday. But there's a lot of important procedural language here about how we should be taking the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, the, the, the body uh, is the bread. The, the cup is the blood of the new covenant. Um, and, and these elements are uh, blessed. They are taken. They are uh, then offered uh, and received. And then they are partaken. There's instruction here for how we do the Lord's Supper. Let me highlight just one important point here. I don't want to dwell too much on this section because we just heard about it on Wednesday, and I encourage if you weren't there on Wednesday uh, to go listen to the recording where I dealt with this more specifically. Uh, But what's new about the new covenant in my blood? I think this is something worth spending just a minute on. Verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What, what, What is this referring to? Anybody know? Christ being sacrificed himself for us. Yeah, yeah. And so this is, this is the, the, the symbol of the wine points to the blood of Christ, which is sacrificed on the cross. But the reason he did that was for the sort of ratification, we might say, of the new covenant. And the new covenant is in contrast to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, Right? Uh, The new covenant is what we're told about in Jeremiah 31, 31, and other passages where where God is going to take out our heart of stone. He's going to give us a new heart. He's going to put a spirit inside of us. He's going to cause us to know him and to walk in his statutes. And so this is what uh, this represents. And that's what's new about the new covenant is the, the internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the internal writing of God's word, and being made able really to walk in God's word. And yet, what we have here is a, is a church that's doing the complete opposite of that, frankly. They're, they are not uh, uh, doing these things as they should. Well, Paul's going to go on. He's going to warn the, the Corinthian church from their abuse of the Lord's Supper in relation to their love feasts. Uh, why is this such a big deal? Well, Paul goes on to describe there is There is sin here. There is guilt here. And where there is sin and there is guilt, there is always judgment. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so what he's saying here is that there is a worthy way of partaking of the Lord's Supper and there is an unworthy way of partaking of the Lord's Supper. And they're doing it in the unworthy way because they have reduced it into a common meal. That means nothing more to them than just putting bread and wine in their stomach, because even in the context of that meal, they are, are obliterating the significance by having these divisions among them and excluding the poor. Uh, all of this just militates against the entire purpose of the institution of the Lord's Supper as a sacramental remembrance of Christ's death until he comes. And so because they are partaking in an unworthy manner, they become guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. They've, 
abused these symbols. They've made them profane. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, if we conceive of the, the bread and the wine of being a, of no significance, if we just take them as if they're common food, sometimes sitting with my son, you know, he will ask for a snack when we have the Lord's Supper. I want a piece of that bread. But he does not understand what that bread represents. He does not understand what that cup represents. And it would be an unworthy partaking for him to use those elements because he doesn't understand them. Yes? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the nature of idolatry is that it always shares a resemblance with true worship. And in the outward elements, it would seem to be the same. But as in all things we do, it's not just the outward act that matters. It, it's the inward motivation, the inward intention, the manner in which we do it, the, the, the end goal for which we do it. Uh, people wanted to worship the Lord who had brought them out of Egypt, but they did not want to do it in the right manner. And so it is here, the Corinthian church in principle is trying to observe the institution that Jesus gave them of the Lord's Supper. But because they have corrupted it into a, a common carnal meal, it is not the Lord's Supper that they take. In the same way, it was not the Lord whom Israel worshipped. Uh, when our worship is made profane when it is corrupted to such an extent that it bears no resemblance to what God has actually required of us in it, then it does us no good. There is no blessing in it, and that's what Paul is saying. In fact, the opposite is there. Rather than blessing, there is judgment. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so if this is the unworthy manner of partaking in the Lord's Supper, that it's, it's regarded as a, a profane, common, carnal meal, and even in that we are demonstrating a complete unconcern for the church, that's the wrong way to do it, then the right way is to examine ourselves. And this is the, the primary act uh, that we are to be performing as we partake in the Lord's Supper. We are to be examining ourselves. This act of self-examination, we might ask, well, what, what does that involve? What are we to be examining ourselves of? And I think when you look at the use of that word in other places in Scripture, you'll find that the self-examination has to do with the nature of repentance and faith and, and of, of trying to walk and follow after Jesus. It has in its connotation uh, this idea that there's a necessary knowledge. You have to know what the bread represents. You have to understand what the blood represents. You need to know uh, the, the facts, so to speak, of the gospel and who Jesus is. And, and you need to actually believe those things. This is not, you often hear it said, this is not a meal for unbelievers. And that's one of the reasons why it is not a meal for unbelievers. It's also not a meal for covenant children who are not able to examine themselves. Uh, it is a meal for those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ publicly, who have been 
main members of his church, they are the ones who are able to examine themselves as to their faith, of their repentance, of their endeavoring to walk after Jesus Christ, to understand the nature of the sacrament, what it represents and what it's for, that it's a remembrance of Christ's death, a proclamation of that death until he comes. It's not just a snack. You know, uh, many people in the Reformed world today are advocating for a practice called pedo communion where uh, they, they, they argue that the, the covenant inclusion of children for things like baptism necessarily means that there is a covenant inclusion in the, in, the, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so they're saying basically the baptism and the Lord's Supper are the same in terms of who may participate in them. And the problem with that is that, yes, covenant children are members of the church. By virtue of their parents' faith, they are admitted uh, to the sacrament of baptism. And yet Paul is very clear that there are additional requirements for the participation in the Lord's Supper, namely to examine himself and to discern the body which he eats and drinks. And they will say this body really just refers to the church, and it's not a tenable explanation of the text, frankly. But the point is we need to know what these things represent. They're not snacks, right? And we, we would never, I don't think most people in this room would ever say, you know, that this is just a, a basic eating of bread and wine. It's, you know, just something we do. It's kind of a liturgical act. Nobody would say that. But we do fail, maybe not in the same ways that the Corinthians failed, but we do fail to partake worthily in the Lord's Supper. You know, you, you come hastily into the service with a, a mind filled with all the things of this world and you're thinking about what you're going to do after the service and or what you were doing before the service what your plans are for the next week and you pay little attention to the actual act of remembering that Jesus died for your sins uh, you just are going through the motions of sitting in the pew and and taking the supper that's one way in which we violate this principle, that this is a meal instituted for our remembrance, and we are to discern, we are to understand what these elements represent. The other way is simply saying, well, I don't really like the service being an extra 20 minutes, so I'm not going to come. Equally, if not worse, a sin to, to, to disdain the sacrament uh, because you don't think it very significant. These are important things that we do. They've been commanded by the Lord. They're for our blessing. And when we don't regard them appropriately as such, uh, we are in violation in a similar way as the Corinthians were. Well, what are the consequences of thinking lightly of the Lord's Supper, uh, profaning the elements, making it a common meal, uh, making it a point of division between us, uh, disregarding it as being anything important at all? Well, when we profane the Lord's Supper, we're told that we eat and drink not blessing upon ourselves, but judgment. Now, this is not saying that if you come to the Lord's Supper unworthily, that you are condemned to hell for all eternity. There is a difference between what we might call judgment and perdition. Perdition means you're done. You, you are, are not saved, and you are not going to go to heaven. You do not have eternal life. And yet God frequently gives judgment 
to his people. You read the Old Testament, it's constantly a cycle of, of blessing and judgment, blessing and judgment. Uh, and when they're, when, they're, when they're walking with the Lord and in the covenant, uh, there is blessing. And when they walk contrary to the covenant, there, there, is, there is judgment. And the whole point of those judgments is to warn us not to continue down that road, but to repent and to believe and to recommit to following the Lord Jesus Christ in, in endeavoring to, to obey him and his word. And so these judgments that come upon the people are meant to do that. You know, Paul's not saying these people who have gotten sick or weak or some have even died, that he's not saying they're, they're apostate, unbelieving, unsafe people. But he is saying this is how God treats his people. He disciplines them, right? Judgment here really, in our, in our language, probably what we're more familiar with is a word. In the church, we tend to make a, a distinction. You know, judgments are for unbelievers. Disciplines are for believers. Not really, I mean, it's a, it's a sometimes helpful distinction, but it's not really an entirely biblical one at the lexical level. Uh, God often judges his people. And that judgment is for their discipline. And this is what we have here in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak or ill and some have even died. These are the disciplines that are coming upon God's people. Uh, And his goal is that as we're sick and ill, we should repent. And you ask, well, how can a dead person repent? Well, (laughs) thankfully, we are not saved by our repentance ultimately, right? The Lord knows his people. And, you know, it's not as if if you die in a in a, a place where you haven't repented of that specific sin, that suddenly you are in perdition. That's oftentimes what people believe. Uh, even in the Roman Catholic Church, you have this idea of you, you need to have repented and so that you have last rites and these sorts of things to, to, to remove that last bit of sin before you die. And if you don't have that, it's kind of a big deal. But the, the, the situation here with somebody dying is not really a warning for themselves, is it? I mean, they're dead. It's a warning to us. And it should be a warning to the Corinthians that, that when people are getting sick, when they are becoming ill, even when they are dying, we need to ask ourselves, is this, it's not always the case, but is this because of some particular sin practice in our church? And we don't pretend to be able to see or understand all of God's providence. And certainly sometimes people are just dying because of the common effects of sin. But it seems from this passage to be the case that especially so far as it concerns worship, if there are people dying in sudden and terrible ways, we should at least be asking the question. And I think that actually makes sense when you read the Old Testament, right? Guys picking up sticks on the Sabbath, suddenly he's struck dead. And as a reader, we know why he's struck dead. But the Israelites should be wondering, huh, I wonder what that was about. Or, you know, other examples when God splits open the earth and swallows entire groups of people alive. These are God's judgments. They're his disciplines. They're, they're meant to call us to take stock of what we're doing and to consider whether or not there is some place we need to repent of, some sin we need to repent of in our lives, as a, especially as a corporate church. Um, yes. So you were saying this is just a symptom. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, physical death. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems to me uh, that this is something that's 
certainly there are spiritual weaknesses, spiritual illnesses, uh, but I do not believe that this is Paul speaking sort of metaphorically of, of spiritual things. I think we, in, in the general context here, he's receiving word, he's receiving reports. It seems to be the case that he's heard of people dying, and his apostolic judgment on that issue is that these things are connected. Uh, and even if it were just the spiritual death, I don't think that's what he's talking about here, uh, you know, spiritual death, spiritual sickness, it would be the same point, which is to say, when these things happen, in this case it would be you know, weak faith, or apparent apostasy, uh, the, the application would be the same. You see those things, they ought to be signs to you to warn you that you should repent. Um, but I do think Paul is speaking literally in this case. I think we, we, we live in a world where we're just so seeped in naturalism that it's perhaps hard for us to believe these things. Um, you know, that somebody would die uh, because they're eating uh, bread and wine in an unworthy way. That is necessarily a supernatural providence, right? He may he may work it out naturally. You know, we we don't know the details of how these people died, but it's the Lord sovereignly working to accomplish His purposes. And one of the ways He does does that is by executing judgment on His people. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament, and Paul is saying much in the same way. God doesn't change; He's still doing this upon His people. Uh, the disciplines, the judgments, uh, they are real. And they are to lead us to repentance. And so what should we do then? If this is the case, if unworthy participation is a sin that incurs guilt and that guilt incurs judgment, what then are we to do? Well, we are to participate worthily. We are to examine ourselves. We are to discern the body uh, and the, uh, the cup. Uh, and he says here in 31, we, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged what this means is we can I, you will be judged and the question is will you judge yourself or will you be judged ultimately by the lord because if you do not repent and believe if you do not rectify your 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 manners of worship your 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 attitudes in worship the way you worship especially in the context of gathered public worship in the church if you do not fix these things if you do not judge yourself you will be judged. That's what Paul is saying. And so we can either judge ourselves and rectify our manner of worship, or we will be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with this world. And this is the good news for the believer, right? Is As I've already said, Paul is not speaking of perdition. He is not speaking of eternal condemnation even in the context of our failing to repent of things in the context of public worship. Uh, it is still the case that when we are judged as children by the Lord, he does so as a father disciplining us as sons and daughters. And so it's not a hopeless situation. It should be a great encouragement to us because our worship is never perfect, right? We never come to the Lord uh, perfectly prepared. Uh, we never pay perfect attention in the sermon. We never... Uh, discern perfectly uh, what it is, what Jesus has done for us. Sometimes we're distracted in various ways. Sometimes we do think lightly of the sacraments. We, we, we are never perfect. And the good news is that in discipline, God is maturing us. He's, he's removing more and more. I don't know about you, but when I first came into the Reformed Church, sitting beneath a, a five or a ten minute prayer 
was a, a great challenge. Sitting in a 45-minute sermon was a great challenge because I was, from a context when I was converted, uh, 15-minute self-help popular teaching type sermons. Reformed worship is challenging. Biblical worship is challenging. It is, it is something that is hard for us by nature to do. And so we need to constantly be asking ourselves, where, where can I repent? My inattentiveness, my unpreparedness, and especially in the context of the Corinthian church, uh, of their disunity in the church, their factuousness in the church uh, from the ways they are partaking. We need to be repenting of these things, judge ourselves, and if we will not judge ourselves, know that the Lord will judge us. And he will teach us. That's what he's doing. He's teaching us to worship him in spirit and truth. And sometimes that means hard things happening. Uh, but we are to take the lesson. We are to take the correction. Paul warns the Corinthians against partaking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and he's stressing the importance of self-examination and failure to self-examine will result in judgment. Not necessarily condemnation, but judgment. Well, Paul concludes in verses 33 and 34, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So he addresses the particular problem of the Corinthian church. They were not waiting for another. Each one was gobbling down his food and not sharing. The rich eating much and getting drunk. The poor having nothing for which they could share in. And Paul says, wait for one another. Demonstrate true Christian unity uh, by being patient. If you're hungry, eat in your own house beforehand. And then come uh, to the church gathering and enjoy a meal together so that it will be for blessing and not for judgment. And then he says about these other things, I will give direction when I come. We don't know what those other things are. Paul goes on to, to talk about other issues in the church, so presumably they are not those things. My suspicion is that there are other instructions pertaining to the Lord's Supper that Paul intends to give them when he visits them in person again. Uh, but in, on the whole, th this passage is emphasizing uh, that when we come together in the church to worship, whether in the sacraments, that's the example here, or anything else, uh, we are to conduct ourselves in a Christian manner. And especially when it comes to the Lord's Supper, it's not a common meal. It's not a snack. It's not just bread and wine. It is an act of remembrance sacramentally of the Lord's death, and a, proclama a proclamation of that until he comes. We are not to think lightly on these things. Let's see them for what they are as Jesus himself has instituted them that we might partake with blessing because the alternative is that we will experience the judgment of the Lord. Any questions before we close in prayer? Yes. So, so the Roman Catholic tradition mm. as a whole mm. is Thanksgiving. Yes. It seems as though the host is actually deified. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The death of our Savior. Yeah. Yeah. And attends mass every morning yeah. to make sure that he gets the host mm -hmm. to serve Yeah, yeah. You know, this is the, the, the difficulty of interpreting providence, right? Because we know from the Psalms, often the wicked prosper and they grow as fattened calves and they are seemingly delivered from adversity. And so it is not an infallible sign that, I think reading between the lines, there, there, we might make the connection saying, well, He's been eating the Roman Mass, which we say is an abomination uh, because it is idolatrous. 
and yet he's been delivered twice from cancer. Therefore, it seems that he's been blessed with healing. And so we might imply backwards and say, well, the Roman Mass is, the, is, is a blessing to him. The problem is that Scripture speaks of these things in both ways, right? Providentially, God will bless a seemingly earth, in an earthly manner those who are doing absolutely wicked things. And simultaneously, those who are walking according to his word and faithfulness will experience great tragedies and adversities and difficulties. And so it's not an infallible sign to say somebody's got it easy, they must be doing it right. Somebody's got it hard, they must be doing it wrong. Paul's saying in this particular case, this is a judgment of the Lord upon them. And so we don't have apostolic declarations of the right reading of providence in our own lives. We can't say, well, such and such happened to me, and therefore I must therefore be in sin, and I need to repent. But we do need to say, something happened to me, am I in sin? We need to ask the question. We don't presume that any time something adverse happens to a Christian, it's because of sin. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And our duty as Christians is to at least ask the question. I think it's largely what self-examination means. To ask the question, is this suffering something that has happened because I am walking against God's word? Not always the case, but oftentimes it is. Um, the issue of transubstantiation, let me just remark. As I said on Wednesday, Roman Catholics see uh, this is the bread, or this is my body, this is my blood as being an equal sign. The Reformed see it as an arrow sign. It's pointing to the reality. And I use the illustration. I think it's a good one. Last time you point to a picture of your grandkids in your wallet. You say, this is my grandkid. Everybody understands what that means. Your grandkid does not live behind that pocket of vinyl. Okay? This is the nature of language. It's how language actually works. And the Roman Catholics are being consistent at very least. They believe Jesus is bodily, physically present in the bread. And so they worship and yet we know that Jesus' body is above the heavens, seated at the right hand of God, because that's what Scripture tells us. Uh, he is not in the body, uh, he is not in the bread, he's not in the wine bodily, but spiritually, because Scripture also tells us that is how he's present with us, by his spirit. So uh, we do not need to worship the elements. That would be another abuse, and I think the Lord often does judge his people for that wrong use. And I think we see that in the Roman Catholic Church and their complete abandonment of the biblical gospel. Sometimes that's what God's judgment looks like, is a withdrawing of the true gospel from a people. So, other questions or comments before we close? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a principle that we ought to be mindful. Yes, we, when you come to the Lord's Supper, one thing you should be doing is asking yourself, have I sinned personally? And do I need to repent to any of my brothers? If there is a division in the body, as there was in the Corinthian church over the rich and the poor, that would be a great impedance to the right partaking of the Lord's Supper. Likewise, as individuals, we need to ask, have I sinned against somebody? If I said a, an unkind word, uh, thought, an unkind thought, is there anybody in this congregation, in this body, that I need to be reconciled with that we might partake together uh, in this sacrament as one body? So I think it's a very good application of the text. So we're out of time. Let me, let me go ahead and close this briefly in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We pray as we look to partake again in the weeks to come, Lord, uh, we, we, we pray that you'd help us to partake in blessing and not in judgment. Uh, would you help us to be prepared, to be repenting, to be believing, to be discerning the Lord's body uh, and, and his blood, uh, to be remembering his death and proclaiming it until he comes. Would you help us to experience the blessings of the sacrament by observing it rightly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.